This evening we're going to look at John 12. We'll start in verse 20. John 12 and verse 20. This will be part two to what we studied last week. If you'll recall, maybe even glance back in your Bible. And remember from last week, we talked about Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. This is the crucifixion week. If you glance back to, to verse 12 and following, you'll remember he comes in and they put uh, olive branches or branches of palm trees uh, in the way to pave the way for him. Huge crowd assembled. We made the remark last week that uh, this huge crowd was likely coming off the great miracle that Jesus had done with Lazarus. And so they are praising the Lord, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, verse 13. And then we, we were able to study that. So starting in verse 20 tonight, this is sort of part two. The reason I wanted to study this with you is because um, personally I have not really gotten into and read John's account of, um, of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem on that, um, that tremendous week, that most important week of history. And so John leaves out some things that Matthew, Mark, and Luke leave out. He presupposes I believe that he knows that they have written their accounts and he's, he's adding his witness to it. He's adding his, his knowledge and his insight to it. Of course, guided by uh, the Holy Spirit. So we'll read along here and notice different parts. But this is Jesus now arriving in Jerusalem and several things occur here that are interesting. So let's start in John 12, verses 20 to 22. And this has to do with some Greek people, some Gentile people, coming up to Andrew and saying, we would want to see Jesus. Read that together. Verse 20. Now among those who went to worship at the feast. Now what feast are we talking about here? Passover. Uh, there were some Greeks. And so they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida um, in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we would see Jesus. We wish to see Jesus. But Philip went and told Andrew. And then Andrew and Philip went together and told uh, Jesus. Okay. So let's bear in mind that Yes, God used old, the old nation of Israel to bring His Son into the world and to prepare the world for His Son. But God also continuously at the same time reached out to the Gentile world. Okay, Let's bear that in mind. Remember in Galatians 3 and verse 8 that Paul refers to the promise God had made to Abraham way back in Genesis. He says, In your seed, Abraham... All the nations of the world would be blessed. Not just, not just the Jewish nation. Okay? Not just the area of Palestine, but all the nations would be blessed. Isaiah prophesies in Isaiah 2, verses 2 and 3, that in the house of God there would flow into that house. Uh, all nations would flow into that house. 
And so even in the Old Testament, you see God reaching out and having people follow him. Remember Moses' father-in-law, what was his name? Jethro. Jethro. And Jethro was from Midian, not of, not of Israel, and he was a priest of God. Priest of God, see? So Gentiles were serving God even uh, in the old times. Remember, God sent Jonah where? Where did he send Jonah? To Nineveh. God is concerned about those souls in Nineveh. And Jonah didn't want to go. But God has concern for, for even for the Ninevites who were, who were uh, in history great enemies of God's people. Okay. You remember uh, also Rahab. And so uh, it's not surprising then when we remember this that there would be some Greeks, some Gentiles who are coming and they want to they follow Jesus. They want, they want an interview with Jesus because many had that had that interest. Okay. We remember over in Acts 10, uh, Cornelius, Acts 10 and verse 2, Cornelius, also of a Gentile uh, background. But he already, before Peter come and spoke to him with the gospel, uh, Cornelius was already a God-fearer. He feared God with all of his house, already was a very generous man, already uh, was a man of prayer. And so um, these Gentiles come and say, we wish to see Jesus. You know, David, also, uh, we have Melchizedek, who right. was also a Gentile. And even Abraham paid eyes to him. So That's know, right. But he was in Christ and told us that the order of Melchizedek. Right. He was a priest to everybody, apparently, because Abraham paid eyes to him. Okay. Brother Paul mentioning Melchizedek. A priest and Genesis 14 and um, Abraham paid tithes uh, to him there's a man serving God uh, not of the Israelite uh, background but Jesus is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek okay. so a very good example there as well and so uh, God can do many things at once he can work with the nation of Israel, which is prim the primary thrust of the Old Testament, but he can also at the same time be reaching out to the rest of the world. So these Greeks, Gentiles, come and seek Jesus. Now we want to notice here, as part of our study, Jesus responds to this request in five ways. Okay. And this is going to take us from about verse 23 down to 33. Okay. But Jesus responds to this request in about five ways. So notice his first response here in John 12, verse 23. Jesus answered them and said, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Okay. The hour has come. What hour is this? What, what is this hour that Jesus has been pressing toward? Yeah, his death, his, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension up on, up on high. Okay. If you'd like to, you've probably, probably done this before, but it never hurts to review. Just trace out the times that Jesus said such things as, my hour has not yet come. Okay, quickly uh, look at John 2 and verse 4. 
Jesus' conversation with his mother at the wedding. Okay. And we remember this. Um, Jesus' mother had come to him and said, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do uh, with me? My hour has not yet come. Look over to John chapter 7. John chapter 7. Notice verse number 30. So it says, they were seeking to arrest Jesus, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man uh, has done? Look at John 8 and verse 20. John 8. These words, John 8, John 8 and verse 20, these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him at that time because his hour had not yet uh, come. Jump on over to John 13 and notice verse 1. John 13 verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, see that? John 13 verse 1. Before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. Now that's rather expressive there. So when Jesus says here in John 12, verse 20, or 23, John 12, 23, this hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, then a parallel to that is, is John 13, 1. It says, His hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, to the Father. Now notice in John 12, 23, Jesus says, the hour has come for me to be glorified. John 13, 1 says, the hour has come for me to depart uh, to the Father. But then connect that also to John 17, verse 1, as Jesus is praying, John 17, verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may, be, may glorify you. And then verse 5, we referred to last week, he's praying, he says, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence, Glorify me with the glory that I had with you before the world began, before the world existed. And so, notice that Jesus is saying to Philip and Andrew about this request. He's saying, the time for interviews is over. The hour has come. Okay. And Jesus had more pressing matters. First of all, these Greeks would be able to hear the gospel later if they have an interest. They'll have plenty of opportunities to hear the full gospel later. And then secondly, Jesus had much more work to do 
during this week with his disciples. Okay. Remember in John 13, he's going to wash their feet and teach them a lesson about that. In John 14, I think it's Philip that's going to say to him, show us the Father, and he's going to be a little irritated with Philip and say, I've been with you all this time and, and you still don't get it. He that has seen me has seen the Father. So he's got a lot of work to do yet with his disciples. And so this is the first response that Jesus has uh, to this request from the Greeks uh, that we wanted to see Jesus. That's a good thing to add. Brent's saying when you think about the hour, uh, think more than just the death. Okay, it is the death, resurrection, and ascension. But also, this is going to bring about a big change. This is, this is the end of the Mosaic system. This is the beginning of the New Covenant. Okay. Uh, this is going to signify the beginning of the church. So this is, this is huge. And... and um, the, it's interesting to me, the Lord, the Lord has His clock. He, there's a divine clock going on here. And though there were several attempts to arrest Jesus along the way, it was not going to be done until the Lord was ready for this to occur. Alright, very good. Notice the, the second response. Jesus gives a little farming illustration here, going back to John 12, verse 24. Talking, he's explaining to um, Philip and Andrew. He said, truly, truly, I say unto you, unless a grain of wheat, you see this? Unless a grain of wheat falls into, um, into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. What's Jesus talking about there? Why is he using this grain of wheat illustration? What's he really talking about when he says... Unless a grain of wheat dies and goes into the earth, it's not going to bear fruit. Yeah. Yeah. The, in fact, kind of connects what Brent was bringing out, that unless he dies and resurrects, there's not going to be any fruit uh, produced. Spiritual fruit, gospel fruit produced. And so Jesus is explaining to, to Philip and Andrew in a way that maybe they can remember a lot later is that he must die. He must die in order for God's plan to be brought to fruition. Okay. He's not just talking about him dying though because notice how he goes on in verse 25 and 26 here in John 12. He says, Whoever loves his life loses it and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Okay. You see, he's trying to prepare Philip and Andrew here, but also all of his disciples, that there are some rough hours ahead and they've got to be fully committed. So verse 25 again, whoever loves his life will lose it and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. 
And when I and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. And so Jesus is saying this grain of wheat must die and be buried. But we also, of course not on the cross, but we also must die. Okay. We must die to the world. We must die to sin. We must die to ourselves. We must die. We must be buried and be immersed in the will of the Lord in order for this fruit uh, to be brought forth. Okay. And so Jesus is signifying to them that um, not only is he committed to what the Father's will uh, is to be for him, but they also need to be ready to commit in a very severe way, in a very uh, committed way. And so um, you see what he's doing here. He takes this opportunity to talk to Philip and Andrew uh, rather personally. Okay. Did the disciples eventually understand the commitment that Jesus is, is um, requesting here, commanding here? Did they eventually understand? Well, I know Paul did. Let's make a quick glance at Acts chapter 20. Acts 20. Knows Paul's uh, words to the elders at Ephesus, Acts 20 and verse 24. So he just reminds them of the things that he had been doing in, in Ephesus while he was there. And um, verse 24, he says, But I do not, I do not count my life uh, dear to myself. I do not... Um, account my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only that I may finish my course and the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus. I think Paul understood, didn't he? He said, I don't count my life as anything valuable. I'm just going to give it to the Lord and His ministry and let Him do with it what He will. Okay. That's what Jesus is talking about there in John 12. Also, there's a good reference uh, in Revelation 12 and verse 11 as um, there is a little statement here made about how the early disciples overcame uh, Satan and his temptations and the trials. Here's how they did it. Revelation 12 verse 11. Revelation 12 verse 11. Here's how they did it. It says, And they overcame... They overcame him, that is mainly the enemy of Jesus. They conquered him, overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, number one, and by the word of their testimony, by the word of God, number two, and by sharing it. And number three, they loved not their lives even unto death. So um, all three of those statements are required uh, to go to heaven. Okay. So, first of all, they trusted what Jesus had done on the cross, the blood of the Lamb. They were anxious to share the word, the testimony of the cross. But then, the third one's the hard one. They love not their life, even unto death. So, the second response Jesus has here to the Greeks coming and saying, you know, we, we want to see him and then Andrew and Philip coming to him. 
The second thing is he gives this illustration of the grain of wheat. Before we move on, look at especially the last part of verse 26, John, going back to John 12. He says, if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. And if you become a servant of God, that's all you care about is pleasing the Father. Who cares if somebody remembers your name or not? Okay. Who really cares? They can just forget our names, forget we were ever here, as long as we are pleasing the Father. The honor of the Father is all we're after. And let men be men, and let the world be the world. Okay. All right, so notice the third response that Jesus has, verse 27. He says, my soul is troubled. My soul, we're, we're not unaccustomed to Jesus saying this. You know, as he, we remember him praying in the garden of Gethsemane and he, he prayed fervently and his soul was troubled because uh, this was a difficult task uh, to go through the suffering of the cross. But then notice his words here in verse 27, John 12, 27. He says, now is my soul troubled and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Okay. So Jesus is kind of talking and saying, what shall I say about my soul being troubled? And then in order for others to hear it, he says, it is for this very hour that I have come. And so he's, he's sort of saying, well, he is saying, this is what I have expected. My soul is troubled, but this is why I have come. I have come to this hour. I came to earth for this very hour right here. And so uh, he, is, he is working this out in his mind, but he is also mainly doing it for Philip and Andrew. Jesus talked a lot about why he came to this earth. Over in John 18, 37, Pilate asked him, you know, are you a king? And Jesus said, yep, for this purpose I came into the world. I'm a king. I am. Jesus talked a lot about his purpose. But here's, here's a very important idea, guys. And that is, when we are troubled, It is excellent to keep the big picture in mind. This is what Jesus is troubled. We, we'll never be troubled like he was. He is bearing the sins of the world. He's getting ready to do that. And he's very troubled. But notice how he reasons this out in his mind. He says, but at the same time that I'm troubled, this is why I'm here. This is why I'm here. It's all about getting back to the Father in heaven and also doing what is necessary to help as many other people get to heaven as well. And we're not Jesus, but we can follow his pattern and keep the big picture, what's most important, getting to heaven. What's most important, helping others, as many other people getting to, he to, getting to heaven as possible. And that really does help when troubled times are creeping in on us. Okay, to keep that big picture in mind. All right, so notice that Jesus' response to this request. First of all, the hour has come. Secondly, 
grain of wheat has got to die and go into the earth. And then thirdly, he says, my soul is troubled, but this is why I have come here in the first place. Notice his next response here. It's kind of a prayer. You see that in verse 28? It's kind of, what is his prayer in verse 28? Look in your Bible in John 12, 28. What is, the, what is Jesus' little prayer there? Father, glorify your name. And what does the Father say? I have, I have both glorified it and I will glorify it. Okay. And we talked a little bit about, remember from verse 16 from last week, Jesus talked about, you know, getting to the glory, that is getting back to heaven on the right hand of the Father where he'll be glorified. Okay. Now, this is the Father speaking from heaven. There were two other occasions that the Lord spoke from heaven. What were those occasions? Okay, that's right. When Jesus was baptized, Matthew three seventeen. Um, who heard the Father there with him? Who heard the Father when Jesus spoke from heaven and after his baptism? Uh, who got to hear that then? Well, we assume John, I guess, right? John. Okay. Then, when the Father spoke from heaven uh, at the Mount of Transfiguration, who, who heard the Father speak then? Okay. His disciples were with him. Okay. Here the Father speaks, and who's hearing him? Well, it's just, yeah, it's just a crowd. It's the crowd. Um, it says, verse 29, it says, The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it thundered. Others said, No, it was an angel that had spoken uh, to Jesus. And then Jesus said in verse 30, This vo voice has come for your sake, not for mine. And so Jesus I guess his fourth response here is that uh, Father, he says a prayer, Father, glorify your name. And the Father just speaks up from heaven. He breaks the silence again. He speaks from heaven and says, I have glorified it and I will uh, glorify it. Jesus said he didn't need to hear this, but those around him needed to hear it. So the Father and the Son are confirming for us and for the people there then that the will of God is about to be done and this is necessary for the forgiveness of sins and eternal salvation. Okay. But then notice after this, the fifth response. So notice Jesus said, the hour has come. He says the, he says the illustration about the grain of wheat. He says, my soul is troubled, but this is the reason I come here anyway. And then he says a prayer to the Father, glorify your name. The Father says, no problem, we're doing that together. And then the fifth response, verse 31. What does that say? John 12, 31. This is Jesus' words. What does he say? Now what? And what? Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. Now who's he referring to there? 
referring to the devil. The devil. A couple other references there, just for your, just a quick references. Second like Corinthians um, four and verse four, Paul calls the devil the god, the god of this world, the god of this world. And I think Paul in Ephesians two, verse two, refers to the devil as the prince of the power of the air. Why could, why can Satan be referred to as the ruler of this world? Why can Satan? How can Satan be referred to as the ruler of this world? There you go. That's it. Because most people, how do we know that? Most people follow Satan. Absolutely. Matthew 7, 13 and 14, Jesus said, Few there are that find it. Okay. Broad is the way. That leads to destruction. All right, so that's why uh, Jesus refers to Satan as the God of this world. 1 John 5, 19, another similar reference where it says, The whole world lies under the influence of the wicked one. The whole world lies or, or just is in a state of wickedness. Okay. So Satan is indeed in that sense, he is the God of this world, the ruler of this world. But Jesus said the hour has come that the ruler of this world is going to be cast out. He's going to be cast out. How is he going to do that? True. Resurrection from the dead. True. What's the next verse say in verse 32? All right. Notice Jesus follows his statement there. When he says the ruler of this world is going to be cast out, he says that, and then he says, here's how it's going to happen. If I be lifted up, what is this lifting up business? Hmm? Yeah, up on the cross. Okay, up on the cross. You probably have your references there. John 3, 14. Remember, going back there, John 3 and 14, Jesus... Just, just one second. Let me make my reference here. I want to make sure my reference is here. Is it John 3, 14? Yeah. What does that say? Yeah. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Okay. And then add to that John 8, 28. Jesus talked about lift, being lifted up. Okay, go ahead. Good question. What comes to your mind when, when you read that and you say, Jesus said, now shall the prince of this world be cast out. We know Satan's still working today. I don't know he's talking about heaven here. Now he's talking about this is the God of this world, but he's cast out. He's now, okay. Now he's about to be cast out. Okay. 
What do you think Jesus is meaning? Yeah. I would think that's the only thing he could mean is that is um, that Satan's power uh, is not going to be held over those who respond to the, the plan of salvation. You know, those, the, Satan wishes for everybody uh, to go where he's going. Okay, that's his entire thrust. Okay. And um, if you'll remember in the wilderness, he tried to get Jesus uh, not to go to the cross. Okay. Uh, do other fanciful things to attract people. But, um, but by Jesus going to the cross and doing all we know that he did, then uh, we and hopefully many, many, many others can escape the clutches of Satan. So in that sense, Paul, um, definitely I think Satan is cast out. In other words, his, his, um, his ability to take um, the humans is greatly diminished because of what Jesus is. I'm not taking it that way, but I'd be glad for somebody else to to chime in on it. Uh, I'm just looking at this. He's talking about Satan is here. This is this is a time in history. Uh, we're not in heaven here. Jesus talking to Philip and Andrew, and um, Satan is at work then. And he's saying, uh, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not picturing a scene in heaven here. What do y'all think? Okay, 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 4. Brother Aaron, read that for us. Whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who did not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. Okay. That agrees with what you're saying. So, in other words... The, the God of this world, he works, you know, most people are following him, like we said, but how does he get, make that happen? He blinds their minds so that the gospel will not dawn upon them, will not shine upon them. But if it does shine upon them, guess what? Uh, they're going to escape his ways. Through the actions of Christ on the cross, he gives us the power to cast Satan out of our lives. Yeah, definitely. Through, through the cross especially, like Revelation 12, verse 11, they trusted in the blood of the Lamb, one thing. They stuck with the word of their testimony, and then they loved not their life. But through the cross, okay, through the example of Jesus, through the word of God, through the blood, they overcome Satan. And Genesis. Uh, Read that real, again, Sam. He said, Therefore, by the offense of one judgment came upon all men to condemnation. Even so, by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. Okay, yeah. Through, through Adam, the sin came into the world, condemned, but then through the righteousness of one, Jesus, then we're free from that, from Adam's. Um, consequences there. 
Okay. Since Genesis, what I was going to bring up, since the fall of Adam and Eve, their sin, man has been condemned not only to physical death, but also spiritual death, and had no way back to God. Um, you know, there were ways that even uh, through the law of Moses, there were ways that they could roll their sins forward, we call it. They, they couldn't get permission. There's no way to put it out until Christ did his sacrifice. Right. And after that, then uh, sin doesn't have any dominion over anymore. And because of that, you can have eternal life. So, you know, those, both of those things are taken care of through Christ. And uh, uh, it says that if you draw nigh to God, the devil will flee from you. So right. you can cast him out by drawing nigh to God now. Right. Very good. That's especially um, what he was saying there about how that um, all of the sacrifices of the old time pointed down to what Jesus is about to do on the cross here. And uh, once that happens, then uh, Satan is um, Satan is cast out. His uh, he still has power, but um, this is exactly what he didn't want to see happen. We have, an, we have avenues through Jesus now to defeat Satan, especially uh, the gospel of I think Jesus. that goes back to, you know, uh, uh, Satan's going to bring us his heel, but he's going to crush his head. Yeah. Yeah, he, he killed him physically, but the end result was, uh-oh, he took all power away from me. Right. People choose to turn to Christ. Satan doesn't have any power. He doesn't have any power in this life or in the world to come. Yeah. So Paul making reference there to that one of the first uh, really prophecies of Jesus back in Genesis 3.15 where it says that uh, he would bruise the heel of Jesus but Jesus would crush the head of Satan. And we must follow this example of Jesus. We actually win by losing. When we, when we give ourselves over and we don't love this life and we, we're willing to be buried in the will of God, then it looks to the world very much like we're just a bunch of losers, but actually, uh, in that humility, uh, we're winning the victory over Satan, which is the most important, really the only consequential battle that there is. Okay. He grew two nines, and he tasted death for every man. Yes, he did. Tasted death for every man. That's good. That's good. So we see here that Jesus' fifth response is... Um, as one of Andrew and Philip particularly, and now the crowd around him to hear that what he's about to do this hour, he has come for this hour, and this, this is going to be a tremendous blessing to the world. But he first has got to be lifted up, and then he will draw all men unto me. It says there, draw. Be sure to connect that to John 6 in your Bibles, verses 44 and 45 where Jesus says that whoever hears from the Father and learns of Him, that's the one that the Father draws to Himself. John 6, 44 and 45. So, not just Jesus dying on the cross, but also learning His will, learning His message, is what draws men uh, to the Father. The Father draws us, the cross draws us, the Father draws us, through the cross, but also the preaching of the cross. Remember Paul's statement in 1 Corinthians 1, 
probably verses 18 to 22, he says, the preaching of the cross or the message of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us who are saved is the power of God. It's the cross, but not just the cross, it's the message that went forth from the cross and that has the power uh, to save us. And that's why Satan, uh, his powers, um, he's been defeated. He's been defeated. Um, so this is good news. So notice verses uh, 31 to 33. 33 says that Jesus was signifying a manner of death that he would, he would suffer. Well, we're able to get to at least the five responses of Jesus to this request uh, from the Greeks to seek or to have an interview with Jesus. Um, this is uh, what you might call bad timing. Their, their request was uh, evidently sincere. Uh, they had come to the feast uh, like, um, like Jews come to the feast. They come to the feast to worship God but also had heard much about Jesus. And so they wanted to know more about him. If they kept that sincere heart, I'm, I'm convinced that they would have the opportunity uh, to submit and obey uh, in the coming days. Anything else, Brother Larry? About so Jesus, Jesus knows how to make an entrance. And he made a grand entrance when he was born into this world in a miraculous way. Uh, here he is uh, entering into Jerusalem and there is much uh, to be learned from this. Thank you so much for being part of class and we'll make more of this information um, available a little bit later.